0: Glory
1: to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. We are so blessed to have you with us today. We have been, we started a study last week about living in the last days, and we're going to continue along that theme today. But right now, I want to take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. First, to honor him and ask for his blessing on this broadcast. But second. 15 years ago today, at the exact moment that we are talking right now, is when the first plane hit Tower 1, the North Tower, on 9-11, at the time of this broadcast. So, let's go and remember the people who lost their lives in these terrible terrorist attacks. As we go through this broadcast this day, the anniversary of the worst attack on this nation occurred. You had the second tower attack, the plane into the Pentagon, the first tower falling. And at the end of the broadcast, a few minutes after we go off the air today, will be the 15th anniversary of the second tower falling and the plane crashing in Pennsylvania. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray up the hedge of protection around the borders of this land. We pray for the forgiveness of the national sins that have brought judgment to the borders of our land. We intercede in behalf of this nation. We pray for the mercy of the Father God Almighty to be extended to this nation. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit from one end of this nation to the other that will turn the hearts and minds of the people of this land back to to you, We bind every demonic power, every evil spirit, every ruler of the darkness of this world, every prince and principality and power in high places that tries to exalt itself against the word of God. We stand in agreement with like-minded Christians praying everywhere at this moment in time, at the time of this broadcast, that God's word and his will will always be done on this earth, just as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for redeeming us from the promise of hell and giving to us the forgiveness of sins, the gift of everlasting life, Now, Lord, have your way with this broadcast that your word will go forth and accomplish what you please and prosper where you send it because it is written your word does not return to you void. We thank you for the word of God that we will read today and which is in our hearts. Lord, thank you for being our Lord and savior and soon our coming king and we ask all this in jesus mighty name amen and amen glory to god hallelujah shout amen somebody get in an agreement praise god turn in your bibles to matthew 24 we're going to be talking again about living in the last days And in order to do that, you have to understand what the Bible says about the last days. And you're going to be shocked as we go through today's study. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, begins his commentary on Matthew 24 with the following words. He says, quote, "...few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and in its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. The history of the interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. Amen, unquote. Amen. His statements underlies the difficulties people have encountered when trying to interpret Matthew 24. And as we try to understand what Jesus is telling us in this chapter we would do well to approach it with caution and just avoid the overly simplistic views and dogmatism and and, uh, the attempts to say what Jesus did not say. Amen. Studying Matthew 24 in the larger context of the preceding chapters will help us to avoid A lot of the interpretation pitfalls, amen? We may be surprised to learn that the background of Matthew 24 actually begins as far back as chapter 16, beginning above verse 21. And we're given the following summary statement. It says, from that time, this is in 1621, from that time... Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, but on the third day be raised to life. By his comments, Jesus sets the stage for what appears to be to the disciples, a showdown in Jerusalem of sorts between himself and the religious authorities. And he continues at various times to tell his disciples about this imminent conflict as they make their way to Jerusalem. You can look at uh, chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. During this time, Jesus was trying to explain that he was going to suffer at Jerusalem is where he took Peter, James, and John up to the high mountain and was transfigured before their their presence. That's in chapter 17. You can read verses 1 through 13. Now, of itself, this must have made the disciples wonder whether or not the establishment of the kingdom of God was close at hand. But Jesus told the disciples, that they would also be sitting on 12 thrones judging israel quote when the son of man sits on his glorious throne that's in chapter 19 verse 28. no doubt this sparked additional questions about the time and manner of the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus, talking about the kingdom, even prompted the mother of James and John to ask him to give special positions of honor in the kingdom to her two sons in chapter 20. Then, they didn't realize it at the time, but the scripture says they realized that after his resurrection and ascension, then came the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. That's in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew said this fulfilled what the prophet Zechariah had spoken, and which was thought to refer to the coming of the Messiah. Now the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred up as Jesus came entering into town. People cutting down palm fronds and laying them down on the pavement and taking their clothes and jackets and and laying them down. It was symbolic of welcoming a coming king that was setting the city free. So the entire city was stirred up. And they were all wondering what was going to happen now that Jesus had come back into Jerusalem. And then... He overturned the money lenders' tables and, and beat them with whips and took other actions that demonstrated his messianic authority to do so. And the people's response in chapter 21, verse 10 is, Who is this guy? In twenty one forty three, Jesus told the chief priests and the elders of the people, I'm telling you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Glory to God. And they knew he was talking about them, Scripture says. Jesus' statement could have been taken as an implication, especially in the eyes of his disciples, that he was ready to establish his messianic kingdom, and that the religious leaders would not be a part of it. Amen? The disciples who heard this must have wondered, man, what is going to happen next? Was Jesus ready now to announce that he was actually the Messiah? Was he ready now to put down Roman authority? Was he on the verge of bringing in the kingdom of God to rule and reign from Jerusalem forever? Would there be a war? What would happen to Jerusalem? What would happen to the temple? What was Jesus going to be doing next? And then we come to Matthew chapter 22 and about verse 15. Here the scene begins with the Pharisees laying plans to trap Jesus because, as I said, and Scripture says they knew Jesus was prophesying these things against them. And they decided in order for us to hold onto our position of power and our position of influence, we need to get rid of this guy. And the best way of doing it and to keep our hands clean is to have the Romans grab him. So they begin to lay traps for Jesus. And they begin asking him questions. And in chapter 22, verse 15, they come to him with the question of, is it legal to pay tribute, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they wanted to use his answer as the basis for accusing Jesus to the Romans of rebelling against Roman authority. But Jesus answered their rather cleverly uh, questioned with his own cleverness and foiled their plan and really embarrassed them. And then scripture says in chapter 22, verses 23 all the way down through 32, that the same day the Sadducees also had an encounter with Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection So they asked him a trick question they had come up with about seven brothers marrying the same woman. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Now, in the biblical times, women held almost no place in society. None. Their role was to be a servant to their husband and to bear children. Since this woman could bear no children, and all seven had married her, and therefore she was a servant of all seven, really what they were asking is, in the resurrection, whose servant will she be? And Jesus answered them indirectly by telling them they didn't even understand their own scriptures. Scriptures. What a slap in the face. Especially since they publicly brought this question to him and he publicly rebuked them. It's embarrassing for them. And then he founded their attempt at tricking him by pointing out there is no marriage in the heavenly kingdom. So next, the Pharisees and Sadducees together Tested Jesus on the meaning of the greatest commandment in the entire law. This is in chapter twenty-two, verse thirty-six. And again, Jesus confounds their plans by quoting both Leviticus nineteen, verse eight, and Deuteronomy six, five. As a matter of fact, let's go there. Glory to God. In chapter 22, verse 36, we'll read this. Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Now, in him quoting these two scriptures, he did two things. First, he answered their question. Second, he showed the hypocrisy that they were showing. Because they were not... Serving and loving the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. You are a spirit being. You've heard me talk about this before as well as other preachers. Glory to God. You are a spirit. You live in this body, but you are a spirit being created in the image of Christ who's in the image of God. You know, I'm saying this if you're born again. Even if you are not born again. And I'm talking to those who are not born again. And you know I'm talking to you. Because there's something pricking at your heart right now. You are still a spirit being. There are two types of spirits. Those created in the image of Christ who's in the image of God. And those who are created in the image of the devil. You are one or the other. And if you have not truly accepted Jesus as your Savior... You are not created in his image, and you know it. You know it on the inside. There is something, it could be a wondering as your soul searches for the truth. If I die, will I really go to heaven Sometimes I wonder about these things. That's what your spirit and your soul is saying right now. If you are not saved. And Jesus, by quoting this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That is the triune being. Glory to God. For you are a spirit, you have a soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And if you are not serving the Lord your God and loving him with all your heart, which is where your spirit is, all your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, And your body, you are not saved. And Jesus turned the question they were asking him to show their own hypocrisy that they were not serving the Most High God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. And they were not fulfilling the second part of the law of loving their neighbor as themselves. They lifted themselves up as being, quote-unquote, all that in today's grammacular. They lifted themselves up as being above the common people. They were lifting themselves up by coming to Jesus, trying to trick him so they could condemn him to the Romans. A Jewish citizen that they were trying to falsely accuse of something and condemn him to death to the Romans. Jesus is saying, you are not serving God because your heart's not right with God. And you're breaking the second commandment because you don't love me as yourself. You think you're better than me. He was bringing condemnation to their heart and to their soul and to their mind by turning the question they asked him back on them again. Amen. Amen. Then Jesus turned the tables on them again publicly and asked them a trick question by asking who the son of the Messiah was supposed to be. They fell into his trap. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any questions. Chapter 22, verse 46. Why were they afraid to ask him any more questions? Because every time they asked him a question, trying to trap him, he made them look like fools in front of the public. Amen? He turned a question back on them that made them look bad. In everybody's eyes, and everybody's ears, they heard. And then they'd stop and, and think about it. And they'd look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, yeah, what about that? Remember where Jesus said, you give them all of these burdens that they have to carry and you don't even try to help them carry them. You just add to it. You won't even lift one finger to help them. And the people are like, Yeah, what about that? So they are getting upset that every time they try and trick Jesus, he turns it back on them, making them look bad. In chapter 23, we see Jesus criticizing. Now, this is something you did not do in Jewish society. They would have you arrested and beaten and flogged and maybe locked up in the stocks for criticizing the priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But Jesus does it publicly, and they're afraid to lay a hand on him because of the people. Now, towards the end of chapter 23, Jesus talks about how God had sent them prophets, wise men and teachers, whom they would flog and pursue and kill, even crucify. And he placed the responsibility of every slain prophet on their shoulders and said that the just Payment of what they and their fathers had done would be required at their hand. And this scared them. Who is this guy that can talk like this? Nobody can talk to us like this, but yet we're powerless to do anything against him. Folks, If you stand up for the word of God. Oh, praise God. Hallelujah. If you are born again, you are in and of the kingdom of God. Amen. When Jesus brings the kingdom of God back to this earth. Now, remember, at his second coming, that's not... Ushering in the kingdom of God. That's ushering in his kingdom, which will reign, rule and reign for a thousand years. And why is everyone scared about his millennial reign? Because unlike some of the preachers that you hear about, This is going to be a glorious time and we'll just all be living peacefully and there will be peace on earth and the children will play with the snakes and they won't get bit and the lamb will lay with the lion and won't be afraid. It's just going to be so wonderful. Well, number one, yes, it will be peace on this earth. For the first time since the fall of Adam and Eve. But it's not because Jesus is so peaceful. And Jesus is so wonderful. And and Jesus is just going to be floating around. No, the Bible does not say that. It says there will be peace for 1,000 years because Jesus is going to reign with a rod of iron. And we, those who believe in him before his second coming, glory to God, shall rule and reign with him. As kings and priests. That we shall be given different levels of authority in this earth. Jesus said "You know, some will be rulers over tens, over fifties, over hundreds. This is the example. Where Jesus told in the parable of the five talents, Come and and you can rule and reign. I'm going to put you in charge over one city. I'll put you in charge over five cities. I'll put you in charge over ten cities. We, now you must understand this as I'm saying it, we will receive a glorified body when we get to heaven. Amen? You die before the end of this broadcast. If you are born again, you are ushered immediately into the presence of Of Jesus. We have that example where Jesus is talking about the beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man. It says they both died. The implication is they died on the same day. And the angels came and ushered Lazarus into the bosom of Abraham. They usher us into the bosom of Jesus. Amen. Into his presence in heaven. The rich man died and was taken to hell. We, since Jesus was raised from the dead, at the moment of death, we are raised with him to everlasting life. No matter what sickness or disease is in this natural body right now, scripture says dust to dust and ashes to ashes. The body will return to the elements of the earth. We were created from dust. Man was created from the dirt of the ground and to the dirt we will return. But we will receive a glorified body at the last day and return scripture in the book of revelations is is explicit that when Jesus comes back we shall be returning with him this is not let me uh, let me rephrase that we will return with him to rule and reign with him amen and we have glorified bodies We cannot die, we cannot be killed because it's appointed on a man once to die. And then the judgment. We have already stood before the judgment seat of Jesus, the Bema judgment. We've stood before his throne and received the gifts, the crowns that we deserve. We've studied this before. I'm not going to go through the crowns that we are eligible to receive. But we receive the judgment of how we have performed the fulfillment of the calling Jesus has given to us All right, in this earth. And we rule with him on earth for those 1,000 years. Why is everybody fearing the 1,000-year minimum? Uh, millennial reign because the nature of those who are not born again they're not cast into hell they'll be given a chance to repent and to and to actually acknowledge the rulership of jesus but because of the nature The human nature that is still in them that remain. They know they have to obey the rules Jesus sets out. Because otherwise, he rules with a rod of iron. There is no playing around. If you commit murder in the millennial reign, you are immediately judged. Judged. That's where we come in. We're his enforcers. And everyone toes the line during their millennial reign. There is peace for one thousand years on this earth, but it's enforced peace. And those Who are not saved, toe the line, because they know if they break the law, there is immediate judgment, immediate justice, immediate punishment, and there is no appeal. Now, the Brother Bob, that sounds like Jesus is a dictator. Call him what you want. This is what the Bible says. That's why there's still natural people on the earth, human nature being what it is. They resent being told what to do and what they can't do. They are still having babies populating the earth that have never had an opportunity to receive Jesus as their savior. These new babies see Jesus. They hear the stories. They understand what is going on. But yet, at the end of the thousand years, the devil is released for a brief amount of time. And he stirs up the agitation among the people, the non-believers who have lived, some have died, gone to hell. But those that are alive, the, the descendants of those that were in the natural, that have not said, yes, Jesus, I want what you have. Those who have not really accepted him as their Lord. They are stirred up by the devil, and this war, the last war, Armageddon part two, if you want to call it that, is where all the nations of the world rise up Against Jesus, the first Armageddon, I'm getting way off topic here, but um, the spirit of the Lord is telling me to say this. When you read about Armageddon and Revelation 19, this is the first Armageddon. Oh, Lord, do you want me to go into this? No. Okay. Briefly stating, the war of Ezekiel 38 39 is where the nations that are the immediate neighbors of Israel come against them. I'm sorry, that's a Psalm 83 war. They come against them and are defeated. It results in Israel getting a mass expansion of its territory. The next war in Ezekiel 38-39 is wherefore the outlying neighbors, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, come against Israel in unison with the backing of Russia. We can see this lining up right now. And they are destroyed, possibly by nuclear weapons. Israel reigns again. Russia's pushed back. Possibly, and, and then comes the battle. That's the Battle of Armageddon. And there is such mass casualties. Blood for 200 miles is approximately 3 to 4 feet high down in the valley of Armageddon. That's the first. That's, that's the where it looks like Israel is about to be overrun, and they call out to God to save them, and he sends Jesus. Glory to God. As soon as his foot hits the mountaintop, it splits in two, and it says with a word he destroys all the armies. That's the battle of Armageddon. Amen. That's the first battle of Armageddon at the second coming. Now, the second battle of Armageddon takes place at the end of the 1,000-year reign as Satan is released for a brief time and he stirs up enough support among the natural-born men that have not really accepted Jesus as ruler, king, and savior and lord that they come to fight against him. And this battle does not last long. Number one, we are glorified. We can't be killed. Number two, Jesus isn't going to put up with it. He just speaks a word and poof. It is all over. Satan is judged and that's it. His revolt has been put down. At that point in time, Everybody goes to heaven. Everybody, even those in hell, are taken to heaven. They're seeing the glory of heaven. They're seeing what belongs to those who have believed. But they stand trembling and quaking Because they're being brought before the judgment seat of God and cast forever into the lake of fire which was built for the devil and his angels. But since the non-believers refuse to accept Jesus as their Savior, they also shall receive the judgment meant for the devil and his angels. Amen. Then, while this is taking place, the Bible says, a terrible fire engulfs the whole earth that cleanses it of everything evil. And a new heaven and a new earth are created by God, which is also Jesus, because he was a triune Being with God. And after this new heaven and new earth are recreated, the new Jerusalem is brought down from heaven to earth. And that's where we dwell with Jesus forever. We are not going to live forever in heaven floating around on little clouds playing golden harps. No. The 1,000-year reign, we are here working. After the second battle of Armageddon, after the judgment seat before God of those unbelievers, after the old earth that we are on right now is dissolved by fire after the new heaven and new earth is created. After new Jerusalem is brought down from heaven to this new earth. That's where we dwell with Jesus. On the new earth. Glory to God. Wow, did I get way off topic on that. Amen. But that's the the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I gotta figure out where I was at. Wow. Okay. There, in Matthew 23, verse 39, Jesus in a prayer to Jerusalem spoke about its house becoming desolate, the temple. This is connected to the cryptic his cryptic comment. I'm telling you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed. Is he who comes in the name of the Lord? This is talking about when Jerusalem is or in Israel is surrounded by its enemies and about to be destroyed. There is no help but God, and they call out to Jesus. They call out to God, and He answers. Now the disciples must have been becoming increasingly puzzled by all this. I mean, they're curious, they're anxious about the things Jesus is saying. Was he about to proclaim himself as king? Was he going to go out of town and organize a rebellion and start a war so that the next time the authorities saw him, they would be forced to acknowledge him as the king of Israel and his Lord? No, the disciples were confusing current events with the end times. Ah, That's something that's been going on for centuries and centuries, folks. And that's what we're discussing today. Do not get all wrapped up in all the evil things you see on the news every night. Well, Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself again. Let's get back into the Bible, and I'll give my commentary at the end. Amen? After these things, Jesus left the temple. And as he's walking away... His disciples point to its buildings. In Mark's words, they said, Hey, look, Jesus, what massive stones. Remember, Herod is expanding the Temple Mount. Right? They're saying, Man, look at the size of these stones. These are magnificent buildings. It's in thirteen, uh, Mark 13.1. Luke says the disciples are marked, How the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with all the gifts dedicated to God. Think about what must have been going through the disciples' minds, folks. Jesus' comments about Jerusalem's desolation and destruction and then his confrontation happens with religious leaders. These boys were both frightened and excited at the same time. They must have been wondering why he was speaking about the impending doom on Judaism and all its institutions. Wasn't the Messiah coming to glorify both? By their comments about the temple, it seems as if they were concerned and, and confused. Say, Surely nothing could happen to this beautiful temple in which God dwells. <coughs> Jesus then made the disciples... Even more curious and frightened. Amen. He brushed aside their praise of the temple. He says, do you see all these things? I'm telling you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. That's in 24-2. That must have shocked the disciples. I mean, they thought the Messiah was coming to save Jerusalem and to save the temple. Not allow them or have them to be destroyed. As Jesus spoke about these things, the disciples must have thought about the end of Gentile rulership and then the glory of Israel, both of which are prophesied so many times throughout Hebrew scriptures. They knew these events would occur at the time of the end, according to many verses in the book of Daniel. It was at this time that the Messiah was supposed to appear or come to usher in the kingdom of God. This meant Israel would arise to national greatness as the spearhead of the kingdom of God. The disciples who believed that Jesus was that Messiah were naturally anxious to know if the time of the end had now come. There was great expectation that Jesus was about to announce that he was the Messiah. That's in John 12, you read it in verses 12 through 18. It's not surprising then that the disciples pressed Jesus about the nature and the timing of his quote-unquote coming. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, The excited disciples came to him privately to try and get some inside information. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's in Matthew 24. We finally made it there. Glory to God. Verse 3. They wanted to know when the things Jesus said about Jerusalem were going to take place. For they undoubtedly associated these things with the end of the age and his quote-unquote coming. When the disciples asked about his coming, they didn't have a second coming in mind. In their thinking the Messiah was going to come, and immediately establish his government in Jerusalem, and it would last forever. There would be no first or second coming in their opinion. There is another vital point to notice about Matthew 24.3, for it is kind of a summary statement of the entire content contained in chapter 24. I want to repeat the disciples' question, and I want you to listen to it. This is what they asked Jesus. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. They wanted to know when the things Jesus said about Jerusalem would take place. For they associated these with the end of the age and his coming. So the disciples were really asking him three separate questions. First, he had just finished talking about how the, the temp, how the temple was going to be destroyed. And then they came to him privately, once they were away from the crowds, they came to him privately and said, When would this happen? The this is the reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which he just finished telling them about being threatened with destruction. The second question they wanted to know was, what is the sign of his coming, which we shall see, is basically what they're saying. Jesus finally gave them in verse 30 of chapter 24 the answer to that question. But then the third question that they wanted to know, was when is the end of the age? This is something that Jesus told the disciples they could not and would not know in verse 36. Now, if we separate out the three questions, which is the purpose of this whole study today, everything we just talked about was the background to get you to this point of the focus of these three things questions and if we separate out separate out those three questions and see how jesus answered each one of them we can clear up a number of problems or misrepresentations associated with matthew 24. jesus was telling his disciples that jerusalem and the temple the this in their question would indeed be destroyed In their day, they would see it. But the sign that they asked about, the second question, Jesus said would be associated with his coming, not with the destruction of the city and the temple. This means those are two separate events. Finally, as to the disciples' third question, Jesus said, no one could know the answer to that question of when he would return and the end of the age, it would only be announced by the Heavenly Father when his timing was accomplished. Even Jesus said even he didn't know what time that would be. In Matthew 24, there are three separate questions, and each one is answered individually in Jesus' reply. And we can still have Jesus' return and the end of the age occur in the future and Jerusalem be destroyed in the past. Just like happened in A.D. 70, just like Jesus said it would. <clears throat> this is not to say that the disciples separated out the destruction of Jerusalem from the end because they couldn't do that they probably thought that the events would occur at the same time. Amen? Let's see how these questions play out in Matthew 24. First, note that Jesus did not seem particularly interested at all in talking about the circumstances of the end of time. It was his disciples who provoked the questions, and Jesus felt obliged to, to give them some information concerning their comments. We also can see that certainly the disciples' questions about the end were all based on a wrong conclusion, that all the events would occur almost simultaneously, and that they were about to happen immediately. Therefore, it's not surprising that they thought Jesus' coming as the Messiah was extremely close in that the sense it might happen within a couple of days or at the most a couple of weeks from now, still they wanted to know what a physical sign would be of his coming as a confirmation. With this private and secret knowledge, see, they would be able to place themselves At the most advantageous position when Jesus was about to make his move. At least that's what they thought. You know, we need to look at Jesus' comments in Matthew 24 in that context, amen? In short, the disciples provoke the discussion. They think Jesus is about to assume power, and they want to know exactly when this will happen. They want a preparatory sign, you know, like in the movies. Okay, boys, when you see me call fire down from heaven, the battle's about to begin or something like that. But the disciples totally misunderstood Jesus' mission and purpose. Rather than answering their questions on their own terms, Jesus used the occasion to teach them three very important things. One, he taught them that the scenario they were asking about was much more complicated than their simplistic notions. Two, they could not know when Jesus would come, or as we would say, return. And three, they should worry about or watch their relationship with God and not worry about watching world or local events. Oh, Brother Bob, now I see why we're talking about this today. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're starting to catch on. Now notice how Jesus' confrontation with his disciples unfolded. Keep these principles in our prior discussion today in mind. The first thing he did was to warn the disciples not to be deceived by traumatic events that might make it appear as though the end was near. Tumultuous things would happen in the world, but the end is still to come. Next, Jesus told his disciples that they would be persecuted. And put to death. That's 24 verses 9 through 13. How shocking that should have seemed. I mean, they must have wondered, what's all this talk about persecution and death? Wait a minute. The Messiah's people were supposed to be triumphant and victorious, not butchered and destroyed. Didn't he promise us that we were going to sit with him on 12 thrones judging Israel? What is he talking about? We're going to be put to death. Then Jesus began talking about a gospel that was to be preached to the whole world. After that, the end would come in verse 14. This must have been totally confusing to the disciples. They probably thought the Messiah would come first, then establish his kingdom. Only after that would the word of the Lord go forth into all the earth. I mean, that's in the prophet. That's in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. To them, Jesus seemed to backtrack and forecast a dire warning for the temple. The abomination of desolation would be seen in the holy place, and then those in Judea would have to flee to the mountains. This would be a dreadful time indeed for the Jews. For verse 1560 says, For then there shall be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again, Jesus was saying. That's in verse 21. Things would get so bad, nobody would survive if those days were not cut short. And though Jesus mentioned what would happen in the world at large, Jesus was talking primarily about what was going to happen in Judea and Jerusalem. Luke used the phrase, there will be great distress in the land to describe the context of Jesus' comments. The temple, Jerusalem, and Judea were the focus of Jesus' warning, not the entire world. The warning Jesus gave about impending doom was for the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. And the events that happened between AD 66 and 70 confirm this. It's not surprising then that Jesus told them, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter time or on the Sabbath day. Some people wonder why he would make that kind of statement if the church isn't required to observe the Sabbath. Since the Sabbath is no longer a concern for Christians, why would it be mentioned as a significant problem in the last days? Well, you see, the Jews believed it was wrong to take long journeys on the sabbath they apparently even had a measurement for the maximum distance that could be traveled on this day which was called a sabbath days journey or walk acts 112 In luke's example it was the distance between the mount of olives and the perimeter of jerusalem and the city itself but Jesus said that people who were in Judea would need to flee far away into the hills. A Sabbath day walk would not get them out of harm's way. And Jesus knew that those listening to him right then believed you should not do that kind of traveling that his warning was talking about if it was on the Sabbath day. That's why Jesus told his disciples to pray that their flight would not have to occur on the Sabbath day. He gave this admonition in the context of their current understanding of the law of Moses. We can paraphrase Jesus' thought this way. I know you don't believe in traveling long distances on the Sabbath, And you won't do it because of what you think the law demands. So if the things to befall Jerusalem fall on the Sabbath day, you will be caught and killed. I can only offer you this advice. You better pray that the need to flee does not occur on the Sabbath. Even if they did choose to flee on the Sabbath, the restrictions imposed by other Jews would make escape difficult. Now, as we stated earlier, we can understand this part of Jesus' explanation to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 70. Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who still kept the law of Moses would be caught up in these events and have to flee. They would have to deal with, with their belief about the Sabbath regulations, if circumstances demanded that they flee on the Sabbath day. Meanwhile, Jesus continued his discourse, which had the purpose of answering the disciples' three questions about when he would come. But note that so far, all he's done is tell them when he will not come. Jesus has separated out the calamity to occur at Jerusalem from the sign and the coming of the end. Now, the disciples at this point must be totally confused because they thought that the destruction in Jerusalem and Judea was the sign of the end they were looking for. But Jesus said, no, you're mistaken. And he pointed out their error. He said, if anybody is to say to you, look, here's the Messiah. There he is. Don't believe it. Do not believe it. What were the disciples to make of this? I mean, they must have wondered, we asked Jesus when he would establish the kingdom. And we asked Jesus to give us a sign of this event. And he keeps talking about that the end is not yet. And that everything that looks like a sign is not a sign. What does he mean? But yet Jesus continued to tell his disciples when he would not come or appear. He says, if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go there. Or here he is in the inner room, don't believe it. Jesus was driving home the point that his disciples should not be deceived by world events or by people claiming to know when the sign of the end had occurred or was going to happen. Perhaps he was even telling them that the fall of Jerusalem and of the temple were not the harbinger of the end. Now we can skip down to verse 29, where Jesus begins to tell his disciples about the sign of his coming. And they are probably, oh, finally. And it's just to answer their second question. He says, the sun and moon will be darkened and stars, perhaps comets or meteorites, would fall from the sky and the solar system itself would be shaken. So finally... Jesus gave the disciples the sign they were waiting for. And he said, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the sign of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Glory to God. That's in verse 30. So basically, the sign of Jesus' coming as he gave it, the sign of his coming was or is his coming. There's a lesson here for us. Quite simply, there is no advanced sign of Jesus' coming that we will be able to use to predict his coming. He comes when he gets here. And the people who are alive, when he comes, will see it happen. I'll get back to this part in just a minute. Next, Jesus asked the disciples to learn a lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the tree's twigs are tender and the leaves come out, you know summer is near. Even so, Jesus said, when you see all these things happening, you should know that it is near, even right at the door. What are all these things? Are they only wars and famines and earthquakes in various places? No. These are only the beginning of sorrows, Jesus said. There are many other sorrows as well before the end. Does all these things And at the appearance of false preachers and the preaching of the gospel? No again. Is all these things fulfilled with the distress in Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple? No, it is not. What then, Brother Bob? does he mean by all these things? What does it include? Before we answer, let's digress just a moment to describe what may have been an after-the-fact discussion that the Church of the Apostles' day had to learn and which the Synoptic Gospels talk about. The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the destruction of the Temple, the death of many Jewish religious leaders and some of the Apostles, must have been a surprise to the Church. It is almost certain the Church believed that Jesus was going to return immediately after this happened. But He didn't return. And some Christians must have been disturbed by that. However, the Gospels show that much more had to happen than just the destruction of the city and temple. The church should not assume that because Jerusalem fell and Jesus didn't return, that the church has been misled. No, the Gospels repeated Jesus' thought for the benefit of the church. Until you see the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky, do not listen to those who say he's already come or is about to come. So now we come to the real lesson that Jesus wanted to get across in the dialogue of Matthew 24. That's Jesus' discussion now. And Matthew 24 is not so much to be taken as a prophecy, but as a Christian living lesson. Matthew 24 is Jesus' warning that his disciples always need to be spiritually ready precisely because they will not know when he will come. The parables of Matthew 25 continue that same theme. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, No one knows about that day or hour, not the angels in heaven, nor even me, the Son. Only the Father knows. This is Jesus's plain statement that he didn't know when the end of the age would come. That may seem shocking since he was the Son of God, but nonetheless, he made it explicitly clear that the Father did not share that with him. Now accepting this point clears up a lot of confusion about chapter 24. It tells us that Jesus was not meaning to prophesy about a specific time of the end or of his return since he couldn't prophesy about it because he himself didn't know when it was going to take place. It is a lesson in spiritual awareness, not an awareness of world events nor a when type of prophecy. Let me repeat that. Jesus could not have been prophesied about when the end would happen. How could he have if he said he didn't know when his return would occur? What we see in subsequent history is that Jerusalem has been the focal point of many turbulent events and times. For example, in AD 1099, the Christian crusaders surrounded Jerusalem and massacred all of the inhabitants. Why? Because this was after the Muslims had conquered Jerusalem. This was the Christians move to run the Muslims out and get Jerusalem back. This is called the crusades. And it's lifted up by liberals and by Muslim lovers and by Muslims themselves. Saying, well, even the Christians did all these things. The Christians were responding to Muslim aggression. Anyway, during World War I, in the year 1917, British General Allenby took the city of Jerusalem from the Turkish Empire. And we're all quite aware the central Jerusalem and Judea continue to play and strife between Jews and Arabs. Amen? Got to get ready to close. To summarize, Jesus told his disciples that the answer to their question, but when the end would come, was, you can't know it because I don't know it. That seems to be a difficult lesson to learn. After his resurrection, the disciples still pressed Jesus on the matter. They said, Lord, are you at this time? Going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Acts 1 6. Jesus again told him in verse 7 it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. You know, despite Jesus' clear teaching, many Christians throughout the centuries have repeated the mistake of the apostles. Many have tried to prognosticate when the end was going to come, and almost always it was to be very soon. History has proven Jesus right and every prognosticator wrong. Quite simply, we won't know when the end will come. So, Brother Bob, what do we do in the meantime while we wait for Jesus to return? Well, Jesus gave the answer to his disciples, and it's our answer as well. He said, Keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you must be ready, basically, at all times, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Watching world events is not what Jesus is speaking about here. What all Christians must watch is their relationship with God. We are always to be ready to meet our maker. That's a phrase that was popularized in the movies and in the Old West. Are you ready to meet your maker? Signifying the question that you might die at any moment. In reality, nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. It's possible that I or someone listening right now may suffer a heart attack before the end of the program. We have no guarantee that when we go to bed tonight, we will even wake up in the morning. With that being said, we need to make sure our spiritual relationship with the Son of Man and with Almighty God are intact and secure. And you can only do that by receiving Jesus as your Savior and making him the Lord of your life. Amen? All right. Let's get back to our study here in the last two minutes. Jesus went on to describe the rest of chapter 24. And throughout chapter 25 what is really important it is to watch for. In the parable of the faithful servant, Jesus told his disciples to avoid worldly sins and the threat of being overcome by the attractiveness of sin. The lesson, Jesus said the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him in an hour he's not aware of. In the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus repeated his theme. Some of the virgins were not ready when the day of reckoning came, and they were shut out of the kingdom. The lesson? Jesus said, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. In the parable of the talents, Jesus spoke of himself as going away on a journey. He is probably referring to his day in heaven before his return. In the meantime, his stay in heaven, not day in heaven. In the meantime, the servants were to be faithful with the things that they were to, had been entrusted with. In the parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus spoke of the shepherding responsibility the disciples would be given during his absence. Here he switched their thinking from the when of his return to the consequences of that return on their eternal life. His coming and the resurrection will be judgment day for them. That is when Jesus will separate his sheep, the true followers, from the goats, the evil shepherds. Jesus presented the parable in terms of the discipleship or the disciples relationship to his physical needs. They fed him when he was hungry. Gave him water when he was thirsty. invited him in when he was a stranger. Clothed him when he was naked. The disciples were surprised. Said they never see him in any of those states. But Jesus had a lesson in shepherding of mind. And he said, I'm telling you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine. You did it for me. Well, who's a brother of Christ? One of his true followers. Jesus then was telling his disciples to be good stewards and shepherds of the flock to the church. And that ends the long discourse in which Jesus answered the disciples' three questions. When will Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of his coming? And when will the end of the age occur? All right. S- quickly summarizing here in about one minute. The disciples are concerned by Jesus teaching the temple buildings be destroyed. They ask when this is going to happen, when the end is, when his coming will occur. As stated earlier, they probably thought Jesus was right there going to take over Jerusalem and inaugurate the kingdom of God. But he warned them again against such thinking. But there's more shocking teaching. The only sign that Jesus and we will have will be his actual coming. The sign will have no predictive value. Amen. So if you are looking at the current events on the news as representation of Jesus is coming soon, don't do that. Just be ready. The only way you can be ready is to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You do that by repeating this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I don't know when you're coming, but I know my days are numbered. And I ask you right now to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Become Lord of my life. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed in all you do, folks.
0: You have just heard. A message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's FTFM.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.